0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Yourself be settled and listen, not so much to remember, no quiz at the end but rather to sense if anything that you hear resonates with what you already know to be true in a deep way for yourself, as a reminder of the wisdom that you already carry. And I have uh, three weeks of talks to give tonight, this Monday, and then the two following Mondays, and I was reflecting about which talks to give, and also they're being live-streamed for the first time, which is kind of fun. Um, And I decided to do three talks that focus on three stories, um, because stories are an ancient and wonderful way to carry understanding from one person or one generation to another. And the theme tonight's story is respect, and dignity. And here we've begun, this evening, sitting in meditation with the quality of mindful attention to breath and body and whatever experience arises, sitting like the Buddha under our own tree of enlightenment. And that mindfulness, which we could call loving awareness, now has been the subject of 3,000 papers and 1,000 research studies in the last couple of decades that show the development of emotional resilience and physical well-being and increased telomeres, which decrease the rapidity of aging, and all these different um, uh, uh, measures of attention and so forth. All that's good, Um, but there's something more fundamental than that, Um, and that is that mindfulness returns us to a capacity of presence um, or respect or dignity that can change our life. Now, it happens that today is also Labor Day. Um, I wish it were called Gratitude Day as well. Um, Because when I think about it, and maybe it's origins in terms of the uh, appreciation of the labors of the past, um, we live on the labors of all those generations before us. And in a Zen monastery, before you take a meal, you bow and you say, 52 labors brought this food to me, the labors of the cooks and the truck drivers and the field hands with sweaty brows who picked the lettuce and the labors of the ants and the bees and all of the creatures that made that possible. But the road that you drove on and the car that you were in tonight and the, the watch or the phone that you have or the glasses that you have or the clothing. Somebody learned how to spin cotton and linen and make clothing and passed it on to somebody else some generations later. And almost everything that we have in our life um, has been given to us by the generations before, Um, and in some cultures that sense of gratitude is really imbued in children over a long time. In our culture, especially, you know, the American kind of cowboy ethic, we do it all ourselves. Well, we do. I mean, there's a certain independence, it's true. But that independence is built on the labor of the people who made the railways and built the airports and did the things that allow you to do what you do and invented writing and um, tweeting and so forth. (laughs) So Labor Day is really a day of gratitude for all that we received. It's also, if you look in the Buddhist tradition, a reflection, or it can be on what's called right livelihood, which is livelihood that first doesn't cause harm. It's very hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing, it doesn't work terribly well. So you want <laughs> livelihood that doesn't cause harm to others, which includes not doing slavery or not selling weapons, and here I have to pause for a moment with a parenthesis because the U.S. is the largest weapons exporter on the face of the earth. And we send $100 billion worth of killing machines out to the world every year and then worry that we don't feel so safe. And there's some little problem here, I think, in the way we're approaching this. Um, So right, livelihood is not to cause harm through your work and also to use the work or labor that you have as a way to awaken. And you can see it in all these different ways. Um, there was uh, a man who visited a stone yard and talked to three people. The first was a guy with a chisel working on a piece of stone. He said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm cutting this piece of stone and it's hard labor. He said, thank you talked to the second man who was doing the same identical task, chipping away at a block of stone. He said, what are you doing? He said, I'm cutting this piece of stone. It's my job. And with it, I make a living and I feed my family and send my children to school and support myself and community. And then the third person who was chipping away at a block of stone in the same way said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm building a part of this great cathedral. It might take 200 years. And it was the same activity, but the imagination and the vision that was brought to it by each person was different. And I now have um, fast track, I'm sorry to say, in my car, which means that I can speed through the bridges and I'm a kind of speedy person anyway, which is not all that great for a Dharma teacher, but you, you know, you do, you do what you can do. Um, but what I miss is once in a while I would go across the Golden Gate Bridge And the toll takers wouldn't just take my money, but they would welcome me to the city of St. Francis. And it was like they were the guardians of this beautiful place. The Golden Gate Bridge is so amazing. People from all over the world come to see it. And they say, welcome to the city of St. Francis. There they are. Yes, they're taking your money for the bridge, but there's something more beautiful that they also do. And as Martin Luther King said, if a man Sweep streets for a living, he should sweep the way Michelangelo painted and Beethoven composed music and Shakespeare wrote his plays. That whatever one does, you can bring that spirit of dignity and beauty and care to that activity. Um, Thomas Merton, Christian mystic and best-selling writer, he says... If you write for God, you will reach many men and women and bring them joy. If you write for men and women, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. If you write for your own self-promotion, you can read what you yourself have written and after 10 minutes, you'll be so disgusted you wish you were dead. (laughs) And so you can kind of hear in his analysis that there are different ways to approach the work that we are given. And in one way is to do it as a prosaic task. And another way is to honor it and to say whatever work it is, whether it's the toll taker or the person sweeping the streets or the nurse or the kindergarten teacher or the farmer or the business person or artist, whatever it is, that you approach that as an activity that has some dignity and beauty to it and it ennobles your life. And in the forest monastery where I trained as a Buddhist monk, um, there was a lot of this quality of respect and dignity. Um, We would learn to fold our monk's robes in a particular way and care for the bowls that we had and greet one another with a bow in this respectful way. And sweep the path so that they would be clean for ourselves and the visitors who came and get the little insects out of the way so no one would step on them. And there was this sense that every part of life was to be respected. And it was a beautiful spirit to live in a community where that quality of honor um, was central. And in fact, Buddhist texts begin often with the phrase, O oh, nobly born. O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. Do not forget your fundamental dignity, your fundamental capacity for freedom. So now I want to tell a story that some of you may have heard, an ancient story, um, that sometimes goes with with the title, or is described by the title, What Women Want. So, I'm sure that will get some of your attention. Yes? And it's an ancient Arthurian legend and goes back to the time of King Arthur when one of his greatest knights, Sir Gawain, was out exploring the vast uncharted forests and countryside of England and Wales and Cornwall at that time and found himself in this great adventure way up in the mountains in the forest lost and in brambles and dark and no way to get out and no idea where he was and feeling somewhat concerned and lost not just for a day, but another day he couldn't find his way out. And then it became night again and he found himself under the moonlight coming to a clearing. And in this clearing, under the moonlight, there was a beautiful well. And he was, as you can imagine, very thirsty so he got down off his horse, and he drew the bucket from the well, and he took a long draft of water and felt satisfied and prepared himself to rest there, figuring he would get out of the forest if he was lucky the following day. And as he began to rest, he heard in the distance these horse hoofs that were coming toward him. Um, you have to do this like that's a bedtime story, Right. <laughs> and this galloping horse, and he could see as she approached in the moonlight, he couldn't see clearly, this incredible stallion with the silver and gold saddle and bridles, and this woman wearing an, an incredible cape and long hair flying, The most one of the most beautiful horses he'd ever seen in this incredible gown. And she pulled up to him in the clearing, he was very excited about this, and then turned her face to look at him, And she was one of the most unattractive women he'd ever seen with teeth hanging out and warts and moles and whatever. She was known as the Hag of Bera, Um, but she has other names. She's also called Kali in India, you know, and she's called Baba Yaga in Russia. And she's the old woman who stirs the pot that creates the all the circumstances of life. She's the wise woman that takes many, many forms. And this is one of her forms. So she appeared. And she said, uh, she got down, and she greeted him. And she said, you drank from my well. And he said, I was thirsty, madam. I'm sorry. And she said, well, it is my clearing and my well. And he said, I'm truly sorry. Is there any way I can make it up to you? And she said, well, there might be. And he said, well, anything in my power to make it up to you, I will do. Not exactly the right statement to make, but he made it. And she said, fine. She said, since you have drunk from the sacred well in this deep clearing in the forest, I would only ask one thing of you. Your hand in marriage. Sir Gawain looked at her, had a bit of reluctance, shall we say, and they try, he tried to bargain with her. Is there nothing else I can get you? Is anything else I could do? When I go back to the court, we have the finest food, the most wonderful horses. What can I get for you, madam? And she said, all those are fine, but I think since you offered, I would take your hand in marriage. So he gulped, And finally he said, all right, but is there nothing else that I could do that would satisfy you um, in place of this? She said, well, yes, there's one thing. She said, if you can answer the question, what it is that women really want, I'll give you a year. I'll meet you back here in a year. I'll lead you out of the forest. And if you can answer my question, then I will free you from this request. So Sir Gawain goes, I'm sure I can figure this out. He gets led out of the forest and goes back and tells his compatriots about what had happened to him, and then with King Arthur's assistance, sends people out in all directions in the kingdom with great big books to ask women what they really want, <laughs> right? And some want you know, their freedom, and some want children, and some want money and some want beautiful things and some want um, time to be creative and all. He just filled the books with all the possibilities. And a year was up and he loaded the books into his saddles on his great horse and found his way back into the forest and sure enough, on the moonlit night a year from there, there was the woman with the gorgeous horse and cape and silver saddle waiting for him. And he placed in her hands these books and she read down through it, no, 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 I'm sorry. (laughs) You don't have the right answer. He said, I don't? No, I'm sorry, you don't. She said, so I would like us to have the wedding soon, perhaps in a few weeks. I'll meet you at the palace. And he said, okay, um, I was thinking a small private ceremony. (laughs) And she said, no, no, you're a great knight of the kingdom. Um, We should invite all your friends, all the knights of the round table and the kingdom, the feast. This is Arthur's court. Let's make a big celebration of it. He gulped again. She said, are you not a great knight? He said, yes, indeed. All right. Okay. So he went back and prepared the feast, telling people what was going to happen. And indeed, the banners flew and the great wine came out and they had this enormous banquet and the wedding took place. And then he led her on his arm from the wedding to the uh, bedchamber for their first night together. (laughs) And she sat down on the bed and looked at him and he sat down on a chair nearby (laughs) and she said uh, oh husband uh, are you not going to come to bed with me and he just sat quietly as men can do (laughs) right without saying much and then she said oh husband would you not at least kiss me and he just kind of looked at her for a while and then she said you are a brave knight are you not? (laughs) Turning the screw a little bit, he said, "Okay." Got his courage up, and he went over and he planted a kiss on her very unattractive face, the face of the hag, and immediately she turned into this beautiful princess. And she said, "I have been under a spell, and by the fact of you are kissing me, I have been half released." From my spell. Thank you. And he, of course, was thrilled. Since was this is a beautiful princess, right? Not who he thought he had married. And she said, But I must explain the spell to you. She said, Now that you have kissed me, you have a choice to make. You see, she said, If you wish, I can be beautiful like this at night for you but I will resume my hag form in the daytime. Or, if you wish, if you choose, I can be on your arm, we can go anywhere together in the day and I can be beautiful like this, but at night I will resume my hag-like form. Which would you prefer? Sir Gawain sat there and meditated as you did this evening only. (laughs) with a little bit more reflection, perhaps. And finally, it came to him and he turned to her and he said, what I would like is whichever you would choose, milady." And with that, a tear rolled down her cheek And she began to radiate this great joy and said, this was the answer that completely broke the spell, for you have answered the question of what it is that women really want. (laughs) And the answer in this story, anyway, you can measure it in yourself and see if it rings true, is that what women want in the old language is their sovereignty, which is to say respect... Dignity, agency, the capacity to be respected for who they are with their own life. And when women are treated in this way, when they're seen this way by others, when they embody that sovereignty in themselves, then that allows them to fulfill their nature. Something like that, anyway. So... um, You can pass that along to anyone you think that might be helpful advice for. Um, But you see it in the Buddhist texts also. It's actually quite interesting. Um, The Buddha will have people come and visit him, and most of the Buddhist texts are dialogues where people will come and ask him questions or try and understand some part of his teaching, or he'll offer some teachings to his monks. But very often it's with someone who's come to speak with him and when the dialogue is completed most commonly then the Buddha will say to that person as the last thing after they say thank you and you have shown me something new or I've realized something I hadn't before often there's a lot of appreciation the Buddha will then say now it is time for you to do as you see fit and it has much of that same quality as this story it's not like the Buddha saying, all right, now I told you what to do, now go do it, you know, like he's a kind of parent pointing a finger at a child. Instead, he's saying, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. And he's placing the agency and the dignity and the respect in the heart and the hands of the person with whom he had that dialogue. Every being loves respect. And in a certain way, To bring mindfulness, to bring a loving attention to ourselves or those around us is to bring a quality of respect. Seven-year-old boy goes out with his parents to dinner in a restaurant. Waitress comes up to take the orders, takes a few orders, and then says to him, what would you like? He says, I'd like a hot dog and a root beer, please. His mother says he'll have the meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and a glass of milk. Waitress takes more orders, and then as she leaves the table, she turns to him and said, would you like ketchup or mustard on your hot dog? He says, mustard, please. She walks away, and he looks up, and he says, you know what? She thinks I'm real. Aww. Children, adults, elders, your employers, your employees, your garden, the plants in your garden, you know, the, the, the deer that come and... Walk on the meadow here at Spirit Rock. uh, The neighbors where you live. The owls that I hear at night. The bugs. There's this wonderful poem I like to read from Lloyd Reynolds, great calligrapher. A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. (laughs) (laughs) Every living being likes respect. And so, in some way, what we offer with our attention is respect. There's this beautiful painting in the Spirit Rock bookstore of the Dalai Lama when he was here, and Mahagosananda, the Cambodian Gandhi. They were old friends meeting up by the meditation hall, um, and they're, they're each bowing, and then each one is trying to bow lower than the other one to get their head lower, you know, to pay more respect. Finally, their heads meet just like level almost close to the ground, um, and it's just a beautiful moment of this kind of mutual respect for what they carry. A story for you from the New Yorker some years ago. A small unit of American soldiers in 2005 was walking along a street in the holy city of Najaf. When hundreds of Iraqis poured out of the buildings on either side, fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the Americans who glanced at one another in terror. The reporter reached for his camera and was worried a shot will ring out, a massacre will happen, this will define the Iraq war. At that moment, the American officer stepped through the crowd holding his rifle High over his head, the barrel pointed to the ground. Against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a striking gesture, almost biblical. Take a knee, the officer said behind his sunglasses. His soldiers, the 24 of them, looked at him as if he was crazy, but by now they were surrounded by more than a thousand shouting Iraqis. And one after another, Swaying in their bulky body armor and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns to the ground. The Iraqis fell silent and their anger subsided. The officer ordered his men to withdraw. It took two months to track down Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes, this reporter writes, to ask him the question who taught him to tame an angry crowd in a foreign country in that way. He assured the reporter that that was not part of the army field manual. (laughs) He said, but the problem is as soon as you fire even a warning shot, pretty soon people are going to start shooting each other and people will die. He said, and the Iraqis already felt that our presence by the Americans was disrespecting their mosque and their holy city. The obvious solution was a gesture of respect. And you can hear in this story, as in the story of Sir Gawain, um, the beauty that comes when we're able to offer respect in a moment to ourselves or to one another. And the freedom, the almost breathtaking freedom that comes from the quality of mindfulness, of loving awareness, is that it's an act of respect. We sit, and as we did earlier, we name the experience, sadness, excitement, tension, pain, planning, remembering, with the same respect that we pay attention to the breath. And we simply begin to allow the unfolding of experience to learn from it, rather than to try to judge it or manipulate it or change it in some way. And I remember going with my teacher Ajahn Chah. we were invited to this distant Cambodian temple and the guy who gave us a ride in a kind of rickety Toyota young man was a wild driver and we were going through the mountains in this one-and-a-half lane road and he was really speeding and my teacher said why don't you slow it down some but he still was speeding and mostly the road was empty but once in a while a big logging truck or a bus would come around the corner and we wouldn't see it until a few minutes before or a few seconds before and he'd pull over and so forth and I felt sure I was gonna die because it was it was really dangerous and there was a drop-off and whatever And then I looked over at my teacher, and I saw that his knuckles were white too, and somehow that was reassuring, you know. He was hanging on there as well. And finally we got into the courtyard of this monastery. We made it. And I knew he wasn't afraid to die. I'd seen this in him in many, many ways. So it wasn't exactly that. But he turned to me, and he smiled, and he said, scary ride, wasn't it? (laughs) He was just naming it. That's the way that it was. It's like you went to Disneyland and you took the E-ticket and you had a scary ride. Scary ride. It's just this is the way that it is. And with awareness in meditation, you take this seat halfway between heaven and earth and you acknowledge the way things are. This is suffering. This is joy. This is a scary ride. This is aging. This is delight and dancing. These are the way things are. And this quality of presence, which Suzuki Roshi calls beginner's mind, is the capacity to be present and see anew where we are. There is, says the Buddha, a most wonderful way to live, for living beings to free themselves, to heal, to awaken, to open to wisdom and compassion, and it is through bringing this respectful attention of mindfulness, this loving attention to our direct experience. And we do it in these different dimensions. We do it with our body. So we begin to become mindful of our body, which is this mysterious incarnation that you've been born into, this mysterious vehicle that you're a steward of. And on one extreme, you can be obsessed and cling to it and, you know, worry about it all the time and judge it and so forth. You know that extreme. On the other hand, you can ignore it, you know, and kind of treat it like a truck or something like that. It's true. People do that. Some of you do. I have myself at times. Um, poem from the Latin poet Galiano. He says, The church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. The marketplace says the body is good business. The body says, I am a fiesta. <laughs> Eduardo Galeano. And when we bring loving awareness to this mysterious body that we've been given, it means that we can pay attention with respect. We can pay attention to, with respect to how we eat, Call that eating meditation. How does it feel to put this food into this body? Is this the right food? Is this the right amount today? We pay attention to our breath, not to become good breathers, but because as we feel the breath, the breath becomes a mirror, a vehicle to notice the emotions, the thoughts, the sensations of the body to bring us more alive. We pay attention as we walk. This from Thich Nhat Hans and Master Thich Nhat Han speaking of walking meditation. He says Place your foot on the surface of the earth the way an emperor or empress would place their seal on a royal decree. A royal decree can bring happiness or misery to people. It can shower grace on them or it can ruin their lives. Your steps can do the same. If your steps are peaceful and respectful, the world will have peace and respect. If you take one peaceful step, you can take two, you can take a hundred, you can take a thousand peaceful steps. And what he's describing is the ability to bring attention to our body and through it express this quality of mindful presence, of awareness and respect that both feeds our body and cares for it, but also allows us to move through the world in a beautiful way. If you reflect about your body sitting here now, what is it that wants to be respected? Wants to be listened to? The tension or the pain or the longing or the dance that's not danced in you, the windsurfing you wanted to do, tango. I'm actually sitting here in a considerable amount of pain because I hurt myself a few days ago somehow, lifting something, whatever, and so I had this nerve pain. And I took a bunch of painkillers because I'm not against that at all. but. I didn't like the way they made me feel. I was really woozy, so I thought, okay, for tonight I'll try and be a little clearer. Um, And so I was sitting and meditating and just trying to relax around it. Um, But if you have a body, you have pleasure and pain. It's just what comes with the body. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand. (laughs) Just checking, okay. And the capacity to bring a loving attention to this body makes all the difference. So John Kabat-Zinn, who many of you have heard of, the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction that's used now in hospitals and clinics all around the world, many hundreds of them, he started his little clinic in the basement of the medical school in Massachusetts. And he said, did grand rounds with the doctors there, he said, send me all the people that you can't help anymore. Send me your hardest cases. Because, as he said to me privately, we have the, we have the, the biggest medicine of all. So he had people come who had pain that they couldn't operate and, or had operated on and it didn't go away. People who had all kinds of difficulties. And the medicine that he was talking about was the medicine of mindfulness, of being with what was difficult rather than trying to run away from it. Being unafraid to sit and turn toward the difficulty or the illness or the pain and bring a compassionate and respectful attention and learn that our human experience is workable. It didn't mean that all the other good things of modern medicine aren't important and valuable. They are. But some of the time... It doesn't work or it works in part but only in part and so we said what we have here is the final medicine the ability to be with what's true and there's a kind of dignity and courage and respect in that that changed people's lives so not only is there a mindfulness of the body that we learn as we sit releasing tension caring for how we use our body learning from it as it changes and ages, which it will. But also, there comes in a connection with the body of the earth, a kind of stewardship. And we all know the environmental destruction and disasters that are happening now globally and global warming. Wes Nisker, one of the teachers here, recently went to interview Gary Snyder up in Grass Valley, Nevada City, one of our great you know, pioneering environmentalists starting back in the 50s and 60s, visionary poet and writer. And he asked him if he had any advice for people who were worried about what's happening globally. And the first thing he said is, don't feel guilty. It's an amazing thing to say, don't feel guilty. Don't do it out of guilt. Do it because you love the earth. And you could feel in that statement how different your actions on the earth would be if you do it out of love of the redwoods and the trees and the the salmon and the streams and the earth as opposed to being angry or guilty. It's like the monks in the forest monasteries who saw that the great forests of Thailand and Laos and so forth were being logged off and cut down. And so they would go out and take the abbot's robes and put them around the biggest trees in the forest and ordain them as abbots of the forest. And then, out of respect, the loggers would leave that whole part of the forest untouched. Not out of guilt, but out of love and out of respect. So the quality of mindfulness, of loving awareness, comes to this physical body we've been given, to the earth that we're a part of. It also comes to the realm of feelings. Just as we're mindful of the body, we can be mindful of feelings. A respect for the river of feelings that you have, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. Justice William O. Douglas at the Supreme Court said, at the Supreme Court level where I work, 90% of our decisions are made on an emotional basis. The other 10% is used to rationalize those decisions. You know it's true. And it's often how we guide our life. A man who I've become friends with um, and talked about here before in other evenings, one of the vice presidents of Facebook, a guy named Arturo Bihar, was at a conference talking about how to use social networking as a force for Awakening in the world, compassion and understanding. And part of his job is customer relations, which means he said that I'm tending to 900 million users. He said, and it doesn't take very long to get a lot of complaints. A couple weeks we get a million complaints. That's a lot of complaints, right? He said, so a third of them maybe are complaints about engineering, and I send them to the engineers and they fix them. That's what engineers do. But two-thirds of the complaints are about interpersonal problems, often conflict. I don't like that you posted that picture of me. I don't look good in it. Or you put up a picture of my children and I don't want you to. Or, you know, you put a picture of me and my, you know, mistress or whatever. i got to take that down. And there had been a company policy. All right. If it's lewd or lascivious or illegal or pirated, They would email saying, if you can show us that that it meets these criteria, we'll have it taken down. But he realized that that was very unsatisfactory for almost all these people. And that they actually needed to talk to one another. So instead, after that policy, he sent them a thing saying, why don't you speak to the person who posted that that you have a problem with and tell them you had a problem? But that didn't work so well because people don't know how to talk to each other very well. He said, so all right, why don't you tell them how it felt when you saw it? You know, did it make you upset or angry or did you feel betrayed or hurt or whatever? But then he realized people don't know what they're feeling. So he put a whole thing of emoticons, smiley, sad, angry, frustrated, whatever. All right, so now choose one of these feelings and let them know how it felt. And then, to make it more complete, you might ask them, what made them post it? And very often, if you ask, what, you know, what was your intention, the response will be, well, I thought you looked good in that picture. You know, or I like your children, or whatever. And all of a sudden, what seemed like a problem starts to get solved. And he said, he said I began to realize that I had, a ch- had the chance to teach emotional intelligence and conflict resolution skills to 900 million people. And he got very excited about this. By becoming mindful of the river of feelings in us. Joy, fear, delight, anger, confusion, um, apathy, depression, excitement. Um, I have this list of 500 feelings I read from sometimes by naming and bringing a loving awareness to feelings instead of being lost in them, because usually they just take us and grab us by the neck and, you know, throw us around, it becomes possible to be respectful and say, oh, this is fear. I know you. You've come before. And it tells its story. You remember Mark Twain's thing, right? My life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? (laughs) So this is fear, and this is the story you tell. Thank you for your opinion, right, Um, or this is excitement. Some people have trouble with joy. You're so loyal to your suffering that it's not okay to feel happy or joyful. To become mindful is a radical capacity to allow the river of feelings to be known with the same kind of respect and dignity, and then you can choose how to respond, what to do with them. The same being mindful of the mind and thoughts. Well, I want to go back to feelings for one other thing that I read very often here because it's so important from James Baldwin, where he said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and fears so stubbornly is that they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain And if we're unable to be aware of our own feelings or to bear them, to bear our loneliness or our insecurity, which we all have. Insecurity is part of being human. Anybody not have that? If we can't bear it, then we project it on somebody else, on the communists or on the immigrants or on the Muslims or whoever it happens to be because we can't bear it in ourselves. And we create endless amounts of Trouble and war and conflict and racism and all that stuff grows out of the fact that we can't actually face ourselves. So there's something so honorable about taking your seat in the midst of your measure of sorrow and your measure of joy, your loneliness and your longing and your love, and your 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 desire um, and your creativity, and saying, "Yes, I can be here as a human." with the whole, the tainted glory of your humanity, with all of it, with a respectful attention. And then you get to choose. And the same for the mind. You know, Western society is mostly lost in thought. And that cartoon I talk about of the car crossing the Utah desert, vast landscape, with the roadside billboard that reads, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? (laughs) That's meditation in some way, right? You sit, the mind has no pride, and it spins stuff out. And I was at a conference at Berkeley at the law school on mindfulness and the law, and my daughter was attending law school there doing human rights law. And there were judges and lawyers and professors and people from around the country, and one of the judges there talked about the instructions that could be given to the jury, as if it were a practice of mindfulness. He said he'd had a meditation practice. When they told him he was gonna sit on the bench, he said, sit. Oh, I know how to sit, (laughs) right? He said, I want you to listen to what will be presented in this courtroom with total attention. You may find it helpful to sit in a posture that embodies dignity and presence and stay in touch with the feeling of your breath moving in and out as you listen to the evidence. Be aware of the tendency for your mind to jump to conclusions before all the evidence has been presented in the final arguments made. As best you can, try to suspend judgment and simply witness with your full being what is being presented in the courtroom moment by moment. If you find your attention wandering, you can always bring it back to your breathing or what you're hearing over and over again. And when the presentation of evidence is complete, then it will be your turn to deliberate together as a jury and come to a decision but not before. Isn't that elegant? And that same capacity grows in us as we develop the capacity t- to see the thought process in the mind, with the mind to observe the mind. Or, as Kensey Ripache said, "Mind creates both samsara, confusion and nirvana, peace." Yet there's not much to it. It's just thoughts. Once you recognize that thoughts are stories, empty stories, then the mind will no longer have the power to deceive you. Because it tells you stories and you believe them. And very often, if you look into it, they're not exactly true. You know what I'm talking about? They're often kind of one-sided. You know whose side <laughs> they tend to take. But anyway, so the mind does what it does and it judges you and it judges other people and does Mindfulness says, oh, thank you for the judgment. I appreciate that. Now let me sit and look more clearly with a loving awareness. And gradually there comes a shift of identity, a sense of stepping back from being caught in the feelings and thoughts, not that you don't feel them or honor them or respect them, but they don't possess you in the same way. And you're not limited as much by your habits. It's like that cartoon of the two generals striding down the hall in the Pentagon with all their medals on one, saying to the other, it really shook me. I can tell you, I dreamed the meek inherited the earth, (laughs) you know. And we all have our own ideas about how things are, and they get challenged with mindful awareness, with loving awareness. You start to see them and see, well, maybe they're true, but maybe not. And as you rest more and more in the loving awareness, there comes a capacity of presence or courage that's deeper than just the stories or even the emotions that come. This from Martin Luther King, where he says, the approach of respect And love and nonviolence does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and the souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage they did not know they had. And when finally it reaches their opponent, it so stirs their conscience that reconciliation becomes a reality. So there's a way in which we begin to listen with loving awareness. It's as if we listen with the heart. And it expands our sense of who we are. We become the Buddha or the Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion. Not in some highfalutin way. You don't have to tell anybody in your family, right? But something that you know in yourself. And as we open in this way, our sense of self expands. And we weep with all the parents whose child, when our child is ill, it's not just our child, but all the thousands or millions of parents who have sick children, whose children have died. And when our children succeed, we rejoice with all the parents who rejoice when their children succeed, or all the aunties and uncles. And we sense ourselves as being part, not just of our own little story, but through loving awareness we become connected with the story of life itself. The Listening Project, which was started by some wonderful people as part of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the Quaker Peace Movement. They've gone around the world at different times in the last decades and found the pariahs among dictators and, and leaders that nobody would talk to. Go to North Korea and sit down with Kim il jong and say, well, how is it for you? You know, or to Libya and sit down with Muammar Gaddafi before he died and say, I want to hear what your story is. And their belief was, and I think it was a very important one, that no matter who the person is or what terrible things that they may have done, to offer respect and listen actually is an act that brings about the possibility of some change or healing in this kind of extraordinary way. You could try it in your family, see if it works, in conflict or in planning things. Even dogs like it. Little story for you a man began to give large doses of cod liver oil to his Doberman because he'd been told that the stuff was good for dogs. Each day he would hold the head of the protesting dog between his knees, force its jaw open, and pour the liquid down its throat. One day the dog broke loose and spilled the oil on the floor. Then, to the man's great surprise, it returned to lick the spoon. That's when he discovered that what the dog had been fighting was not the oil, but his method of administering it. (laughs) When people ask for a little bit of attention, it's a great thing. The whole path of awakening is one of respect. The path has generosity to it which means that we share what we have with our brothers and sisters. And that's an act of respect to see that we're family together. It has non-harming or virtue. As I said, it's very hard to meditate after a day of killing and stealing. And to, to tend to the practice of not harming through our speech or our words and our deeds um, is to tend respectfully to ourself and tend respectfully to others. The path of wisdom and compassion is to see the way things are, and they're messy and difficult, and as the third Zen ancestor said, to be enlightened is to be without anxiety about imperfection. To be enlightened is to be without anxiety about imperfection. The world is not perfect the way you think it should be, it's the way that it is, and it's never going to be quite the way you want it to be. And even if it is for a moment, or even if that person is just how you want them to be for a moment, they change, <laughs> haven't you noticed? And then you change. And so instead of seeking to perfect yourself or someone else or the world, perfect your love, perfect your compassion, perfect the quality of respect that you can offer. It can change the world. Can you listen in this way to yourself, to what your body is calling for at this time, to others, you know, as you eat and walk and sleep and shop and do your business and work and, you know, live in your community with a certain measure of joy and a certain measure of sorrow that's given to every human being? There's no one who doesn't long for respect. The elderly want it, children want it, teenagers want it, the disenfranchised, the rich, they want it too. The Croats and the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Palestinians and the Israelis. Really. I remember leading a men's retreat here, and there was a guy who um, had a blues show on the radio in Southern California on Sundays for many years. <clears throat> and he said that at his show, or for, he had a lot of listen, listeners who were prisoners inside. And he would get correspondence from them. And uh, one time he got a letter from a man who said, I'm a regular listener to your show, and I'd like you to play some early bluesmen: Mississippi John Hurt, Blind Lemon Jefferson, you know, Muddy Waters, some of the classics. So a couple weeks later, he said, I, I got a nice letter from this man, Mr. John Robinson, who asked me to play some of the early blues masters, and he clearly knows what he's listening to, so I'm gonna play you Muddy Waters and Blind Lemon Jefferson, and this goes out to Mr. John Robinson. And a few weeks later, he got another letter from John who thanked him and said to him, I wanna thank you for playing those pieces on your show and to tell you that's the first time I ever remember hearing my name said with respect. What does that do to a person? And, of course, we have our insane, you know, two and a half or three million people behind bars in this country, in prison, and seven or eight million people in the criminal justice system. It's it's crazy. But what about the big difficulties? The prison system, racism, war, that's endless, really. Um the suffering, the civil wars in places in Syria or Sudan or the problems in Tibet or Los Angeles. You know, it's not just over there. I was leading a retreat with Michael Mead, a good friend, Luis Rodriguez, wonderful uh, Latino poet, Doma Somme, West African shaman, medicine man. We had on this retreat a number of young men who were coming out of street gangs in the cities with their mentors. And they sat in the back, pulled their hats back over their head, put their hood, hoodies up, you know. You're gonna read poetry? Teach meditation? Come on, man, we're out in the streets. People are shooting at us, you know? Give us something decent, right? So it was clear they weren't really going to pay much attention. And so we took a table in the front of the room and put one candle in the center and lit it. And said, before we start, there are a lot of people in this room that we aren't paying attention to, but they're here with us. So we want to ask you to go out in the parking lot outside the building and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed or died. And place the stone on the table where this candle is and say their name. And some of these kids came back with their hands full of stones. The undeclared war in the streets where they live. And this is for RJ, and this is for Tito, and this is for, you know, their homies, one name after another. You could weep. And when they sat back down, they were there because it became a place of respect for the grief that they were carrying, for the tragedy that they would lived through as young people, for the people they'd lost, and they realized this was a place we could tell the truth. So the, the big difficulties, if anything, require more than ever our respect, which includes respect for Mara, who's known as the kind of mythological representation of evil in the kind of Indian mythology, Mara was the one who tempted the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, and Mara represents greed and hatred and ignorance, and they're not small forces. Greed runs a lot of this world, and hatred does too, and ignorance, and civilizations rise and fall from the powers of Mara, of greed and hatred. Wars come and go, and of course, they get fueled, as H. L. Mencken wrote, the whole aim of modern politics is to frighten and menace the populace with an endless series of hobgoblins, almost all unreal, as a way to gain power. Politics to scare you, so you vote, or not. So they're not small forces. My teacher and friend, Mahagosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, He worked on a worldwide campaign to ban landmines, and I remember this picture of him standing in front of the U.S. Congress making this speech. He'd gone in to testify to one of the congressional committees, and he said, we can't just ban landmines which have taken the limbs of so many of our Cambodian children, you know, and the children in Angola and children around the world. He said, but we also have to ban the landmines in the heart. And that was this dual campaign. It wasn't just the literal landmines, but it was the consciousness that could plant a landmine. And the only force that can meet the power of greed and hatred and ignorance and these enormous forces of people who aren't afraid to kill are people who aren't afraid to love what Martin Luther King called soul force. When his church was bombed and he said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process. And so here's Gosananda leading peace walks through the war zones of Cambodia for 15 years, chanting loving kindness and soldiers coming out of the woods and laying their rifles at his feet and weeping. Without mindfulness, without loving awareness and respect, we're lost. We're lost in habit and addiction and separation and grasping and isolation and fear and confusion. But we can learn it. We can relearn it. We can find this capacity for dignity, which is our true nature in our own hearts, in our own minds. And then that sovereignty that that story tells about, which I see in Aung San Suu Kyi coming out of 17 years of house arrest in Burma with so much dignity and beauty. You know, she could have left Burma at any point, but they just would never have allowed her back. And she said, I will not go, and I will not hate you. I offer you my loving kindness, but I am not leaving. I am here. And this one little woman who's just my age, born a couple of weeks before me, um, 67... In this little house in Rangoon was the light that kept the spirits of 50 million, of people, 50 million people of Burma alive for, for two decades. I will not go, and I will not hate you, and I am here. And that kind of respect and dignity, Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of Robben Island prison in that same way, brings an ability to be present and offer respect to yourself. And to those that you meet, as Nelson Mandela said, it never hurts to think too highly of a person. They often act the better because of it. And it's, a, it's an incredible blessing. So this quality of dignity and respect comes from mindfulness itself, from loving awareness. And someone went to speak with the Buddha and said, I'm a layperson, and I'm not going to leave my household life and go into the monastery. Is there a path for someone like me? And he said, that the bliss of truth-seeking, truth-seeking in life is attainable for anyone who follows the path of unselfishness. If you cling to your wealth, it's better to throw it away than let it poison your heart. But if you live as a lay person," Do not cling to it and use it wisely, then it will be a blessing. My teacher doesn't re- teaching doesn't require anyone to become homeless or resign the world unless they choose to. But it does require everyone to free themselves from the illusion that they are separate. To give up their grasping and act with integrity. And whatever people do, whether in the world or as a recluse, Let them put their whole heart into it. Let them be committed and energetic. And if they have to struggle, let them do it without envy or hatred. Let them live not a life of self, but a life of truth. And in that way, bliss will enter their hearts, and they too will experience the taste of freedom. So we sit together to meditate not so much to have some particular experience happen, but to claim our birthright, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, to claim your birthright of dignity and graciousness and respect your own sovereignty, and from that to offer it as a blessing to the world.